The Black Panther first appeared in comics back in 1966. This was Marvel's heyday. Spider-Man, the X-Men, the Fantastic Four, Iron Man, the Incredible Hulk, the Avengers, Daredevil. All of them are products of the 1960s. You can kind of feel it, too. When I was a kid, it was widely held that if you were a black comic book fan, you read Marvel. Marvel was the real world. It was the street. It made perfect sense to black comic book fans that cops would always try to arrest Spider-Man, that the X-Men were hated and feared, that Tony Stark would be an alcoholic, that Bruce Banner's rage would be world-breaking. So there was always something appropriate about the fact that the first superhero of African descent in mainstream comics would be in Marvel Comics. Because Marvel felt real. And in any real world, there had to be black superheroes. I don't want to overstate this. The fact is that until Christopher Priest took over the title in the early aughts, there really was no definitive Black Panther run. And thus no defining events which rang out across the Marvel Universe. No Phoenix Saga. No Death of Gwen Stacy. No Secret Wars. No Scourge of the Underworld. For a writer, this presents a problem. Comics are a heritage. Creators take over a title and bring their own ideas, all while deepening the older and more familiar stories. So Ed Brubaker and Steve Epting bring Bucky back from the dead, but as the Winter Soldier. Jonathan Hickman takes the X-Men's outcast tradition and pushes it to its separatist extremes. Brian Michael Bendis creates Miles Morales, all the while building on the legacy of Peter Parker. This is as true in the movies as it is in the comics. But when director Ryan Coogler began writing the first Black Panther film with co-writer Joe Robert Cole, they didn't have that same deep well of stories. The result is that what you see in the first Black Panther film and in Wakanda Forever are characters, Nakia, M'Baku, Namor, for instance, whose names are the same as in the comics, but whose narratives are very different. Nowhere was this more true than in the case of T'Challa. I said earlier, Marvel felt so very real to me as a black kid. How tragic it is that Wakanda forever would emerge out of the very real death of Chadwick Boseman, who played T'Challa. Wakanda forever begins there, in death. But there was an earlier version, one written when no one involved in the movie knew that Chad was gravely ill, that was very different. We'll hear about that later in this episode with Ryan and Joe. But first, We'll start with the very earliest efforts to bring T'Challa to the screen. This is Wakanda Forever, the official Black Panther podcast. I'm Ta-Nehisi Coates. Heads up, this is the second episode of our show. I don't want to tell you how to listen, but if I were you, I'd hit pause right here and go back and listen to chapter one. The Ryan Coogler you hear in that episode contextualizes what you'll hear in this episode and frankly, the rest of the show. You can pick up right here when you're done listening. Hopefully by now you've seen the movie too, multiple times even, because we're going to talk all about the making of that movie in its entirety, spoilers and all. You've been warned. Now, let's meet the producers responsible for bringing Black Panther and other Marvel superheroes to the movies. Kevin Feige, president of Marvel Studios, and Nate Moore, executive of production and development. I talked to Kevin and Nate remotely from their offices at Marvel Studios in Los Angeles, California. 
Black Panther was one of the characters that was on a longstanding wish list when I started 22 years ago at Marvel. And to a certain extent, I look back on that and think how happy I was and excited I was that we had reached that point on the list Mm. that we could begin to delve into. People who watch our movies and track our movies know that we had a Wakanda Easter egg in the tag of Iron Man 2. And by the way, a Namor Easter egg in the tag of Iron Man 2. And that, at the time, was not just us laying Easter eggs for audiences to find. It was us marking time and sort of pinning promises to ourselves of where we where we wanted this to go if it uh, if it all worked out. Mm. How'd you feel, uh, Nate, when Black Panther was about to hit? How'd you feel? It was exciting. I mean, I shared Ryan's. Well, we talked a lot and even pre-production about what the movie would or wouldn't do and what that would or wouldn't mean for other movies that were cast in a similar way, obviously. There was a lot about the movie that was undiscovered country, at least in the traditional business model of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. But I do remember that Comic-Con when we showed the trailer for the first time and the reaction both from the, the audience and the cast, honestly, who hadn't seen anything and the electricity in that room, and we've had some great rooms, but that was kind of a special moment of, wait a second, we're onto something here. But you still got to finish the movie, which is always a longer process than you think it's going to be, and you still got to release the movie. And it was hopeful, there's good talk back, and people seemed excited, but it wasn't until that first weekend where you really realized there was something special about that specific movie. Mm-hmm. Kevin, where does... Where does- like when you think about the experience of, of that you you guys went through on making Black Panther, where does that stand? Given all of your years working in in the MCU, can you just situate us emotionally on how you feel about that whole process, from the you know moment of conception, you know all the way up to the moment that it becomes this huge, huge, massive success that I think it's fair to say certainly exceeded many of our expectations. No, it, I mean, it's a high point. It's, it's a high point um, for many reasons. We got to meet uh, and work with Ryan Kugler, who's just one of the best individuals we've ever had the uh, honor of working with on a movie and in this town. The incredible cast, Chad, of course, getting to, to encounter him in his brief time here uh, on the planet. And most importantly, of course, and something that was not necessarily the only, I I was not thinking about it from purely a political or, um, you know, making a statement point of view. I was looking at it as continuing to bring to screen all the aspects of the Marvel comics, but seeing audiences around the world respond to a hero that looked like them uh, for one of the first times and, and maybe, you know, the first time in the MCU in a title kind of a way, um, was overwhelming. And we, I don't know, the one sticks out is the early viral video when the poster came out mm. and a group mm. of men looking at it and just being so excited and saying, is this what white people feel like all the time? <laughs> uh, looking at a poster with all of uh, uh, you know representations of yourselves on it. Um, and that became something that was incredibly, uh, there were all sorts of reasons that it was, uh, that it was a, a very meaningful uh experience for us. Mm. And that all started in a room not far from where we're sitting now, where we were developing Captain America 3 and what would become Civil War, and Nate Moore saying, what if we add Black Panther to it? Mm. 
Mm-hmm. What if we use this as a way to begin to introduce the idea of Black Panther and Wakanda to the world? And that was exciting, not just because um, we thought it would be a great addition to Civil War, but also because it would be, again, us setting the stage, making yet another promise to ourselves that we would start heading towards a standalone uh, Panther feature. Mm-hmm. Kevin, you mentioned earlier you were talking about laying down these Easter eggs for Namor, and now you have Namor. <laughs> and, you know, I think one of, the, one of the cool things about this film is whereas you saw this expansive experience in the first Black Panther for people of of African descent. There's been this choice now uh, by Ryan to open that up, you know, even more and to root Namor in in a Mesoamerican culture, which is not canon in the comic books. Maybe it will be after this. But (laughs) what did you think when you saw that take from Ryan? Uh, I thought it was brilliant and the reason to do it. You know, there are a number of underwater heroes uh, nowadays uh, who've done a very spectacular job of presenting underwater kingdoms. Um, So, yes, the reason to do it was Namor as a a classic OG Marvel character and somebody that Ryan used to talk about during the production of the first Black Panther. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, Panther and Namor have a very complicated history in publishing that Ryan was a fan of, that I'm a fan of, that Kevin's a fan of. Um, And the way that Ryan approaches filmmaking, I would argue, is always finding the organic reason for that to be true. And part of that was then, okay, figuring out the reason why what was called Atlantis, what we could call Talokan, would exist. And you start to sort of back into a mythology that makes sense for the character in a way that was sort of not ever really defined and therefore lacked a specificity of storytelling that, that Ryan kind of requires to understand how to write to. And so by landing in, in this Mesoamerican society and specifically sort of uh, the Yucatec Mayan society of past and present, I think it gave the character and the society an anchor point that allowed Ryan to build a, a, myth- a, a mythology and be a narrative that put it on a collision course with Wakanda because both of the similarities of the two civilizations and the very stark differences in their experiences historically. You know, one of the other new characters that we see, obviously, is Riri uh, Ironheart. Can you talk about just the the importance of Riri uh, in this film? And also, I think, related to that, the extent to which this film centers around women and is very much a mother-daughter story you know, I would say, whereas, you know, one might consider the first Black Panther actually much more of a father-son story. Uh, this is very much, you know, a, a mother-daughter story. And, and I, I wonder how you guys felt about that, what you thought about that. Yeah, I mean, the mother-daughter angle was dictated by the reality of what we were working with once Chad passed, right? Um, it seemed natural that the two people who would be most affected by T'Challa passing would be Ramonda and Shuri. And... I don't know what other course of action there would be other than to lean into that dynamic because that is where the emotion is for the storytelling. And it doesn't hurt that you have two fantastic actresses in Angela Bassett and Letitia Wright. So it's not like, oh, we can't depend on them to deliver. In fact, they over-delivered in the first movie, I would argue, and sort of, if not emotionally, at least from a talent perspective, were ready to carry the film. I think Riri is an interesting addition to the franchise because much like Talo Khan, it's a study in contrast, right? It's someone who 
you could argue, is as smart as Shuri is, but educated in a completely different society with a completely different experience as a black woman in America. And so to hold those two characters next to each other, there's, again, there's just narrative tension in that relationship. And so I'll just go back to it. Like Ryan, as a filmmaker and a storyteller, is interested and building the tension of people and then seeing how they pinball off each other. And so when you have both Wakanda and Talokan and Shuri and Riri and Namor, who all have these points of view that are in contrast with each other, there's magic in that if you can land on it correctly. But the female-centric vibe of the movie is just organic storytelling. Like, I guess we could have introduced more male characters and shoved them in there or figured out ways to, you know, get other male heroes in there if our goal was just, like, have more guys. But that's that's not a great goal to ha- for anybody to have. Really, it's how do we tell the best story. Mm-hmm. How did you guys know Letitia was ready? I mean, she did an incredible, incredible job. I'm sure you guys as producers are uh, familiar with her oeuvre in a, in a way that uh, certainly casual movie fans are not. I mean, not to say that they haven't seen her and other things, but you guys, you know, like, really, really, it's your business to know. From that perspective, how did you know she was ready to carry the weight of this role. You know, Ryan uh, uh, very much believed in her based on her early auditions for Panther 1. She obviously killed it and crushed it on Panther 1 in the emotional scenes, in uh, bringing humor to that film. Um, so I think there was no question that she was capable of, uh, of even more. Um, I don't ever even remember having the conversation. Do we think she's ready for this? Mm-hmm. Do we think she can do it? I think we just knew that if she believed she could do it and was willing to step into it, that she could. And she did. Yeah, I think the bigger question was always emotionally, is she ready to do it? Right. It was never a question of talent. Yep. You know what I mean? She's so, to Kevin's point, she's so talented. She was great in Black Mirror. She's great in everything you ever see her in. Um, frankly, it was. Uh, hey, you've just lost someone who is very important to you as well. Are you ready to take on this thing? Um, Mm -hmm. And and again, she'll say it and has said it. For her, it was about honoring Chadwick by doing this. And experientially in the filming of the movie, I will say incredibly prepared, incredibly passionate. Um, Again, kind of knew what the movie was for her character in a way that always kept her as our North Star to some degree. Um, still funny, still charming, still all of the things that, that Sherry was in the first movie with just that added gravitas of of going through this tragic loss. So, Kevin, where do you foresee uh, the world of Namor and Telecon in the future in MCU? You know, people who read the comics know that there's 80 years of, of stories with Namor that we can tap into. So where and when, um, we'll uh, keep to ourselves for now. But we think that... Uh, this is an incredibly iconic character that's being introduced uh, probably to most people, most moviegoers for the first time, and we very much expect them to want to see more. I would be remiss if I did not uh, point out the fact, and I'd be a bad fan if I did not point out the fact that he refers to himself as a mutant. Is that intentional? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's accurate as well, you know? Intentional and accurate. Okay. Intentional and accurate. Finally, guys, I'm going to ask you guys just to answer uh, something, both of you. Uh, you. You both, uh, like myself, old school uh, comic book fans. Uh, 
with with memories of of, of the floppies, I got the whole library on my iPad <laughs> now here. Uh, but you know, in my office, I have all I have like a ton of floppies in you know with with the backboard and and, and yeah, everything yeah. you know. Um, and I just I want you to try to think back to the time when you were kids <laughs> collecting. And I, I wonder what the kid of you think it is now. I think about that every day in every aspect of what I'm lucky enough to do. Um, uh, every day is surreal. And bringing these comic stories to life, again, which has now been a 22-year journey, mm-hmm. just from when longer, going back to working in the early days of the first X-Men film. Um, and so much of that time now, it was half my, almost half my life ago, um, was spent looking at comics and dreaming dare I say, what if? What if we could make more X-Men movies? What if we could bring Spider-Man to the screen? What if we could eventually do the Avengers? Um, And it's fun that the audience has responded the way they have uh, so that we can keep and now finally bringing Namor to the screen. Yeah, it certainly seems like the cuts are deeper than ever. I mean, when I was a kid and it was Superman and it was Batman and Spider-Man was coming in, you're like, well, I guess guess we've made it, guys. I guess that's it. (laughs) Uh, But... (laughs) You know, the fact that there's a Guardians of the Galaxy movie and an Ant-Man movie and people are like, what, what is going on? And for me, it's like, oh, no, these are all characters that I've lived with in my imagination for, again, 40 years plus. But it just goes to show that I, I think comic storytelling, which was marginalized for a long time for a lot of reasons, is as valid as any form of storytelling if you take it seriously mm-hmm. and see it for what it can be, which is a genre that you can explore things with. Mm-hmm. Great fantastical ideas, big adventure, big characters, and themes that are resonant. Um, and the great news is Marvel Comics, even back in the day, thematically, we're talking about stuff. So we're just... It we're was getting... always there if you were... There were some people That's who right. couldn't get past a four-color printed That's right. two-dimensional story. You, they just couldn't do that. Just like today, dare I say, there are people who can't get past a genre story or something that's, right. that's in space, or people can breathe underwater. Nah, not yeah. for me. That's, that's not real. Um, that's that's a theme park. Yeah. When really we're just standing on the shoulders of, of the creators that came before us who, who, who laid the groundwork for all this stuff. Yeah, no, I, I think it's incredible. And I just want to say... Um, I remember back in what it would have been, 95, 96, I was amazed that there was an X-Men cartoon. And so to live in this world where there's actually an MCU is just mind-blowing. Congratulations, guys. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Always good talking to you. Thanks so much. Back in 2003, I was a struggling journalist working for a newspaper on its last leg. It was not my finest hour, and honestly, I kind of knew it. I wrote some profiles, did a little bit of local politics, and reviewed some music. The newspaper's owners, meanwhile, were cutting budgets and trying to push people out. One day, while contemplating my dim prospects, I saw an ad for an assistant editor job at Marvel Comics. I thought really hard about applying. But comics were mystical to me. I had no idea how they were actually made. I could never work for Marvel, I thought. So I didn't apply. And a few months later, when it was clear I was next to be pushed, I leaped instead. Thus beginning one of my many bouts of unemployment which dotted the early days of my writing career. Twelve years later, in a very different place in my life, I got an offer out of the blue to write The Black Panther. 
Comics was still mystical to me. A writer friend of mine says you have to learn how to write every book. I felt like that about Black Panther. Frankly, it's hard for me to read those early issues because I'm still editing them in my mind, trimming dialogue, changing panel count, critiquing plot points. It's not fun. It's also not very different from how I feel about all my work. But like I said up top, comics are heritage, which means you get to see the characters you worked on, the world you lived in, rendered by other hands. You'll hear stories of comic book creators being resentful about this, but not from me. On the contrary, the beauty of reading Jonathan Hickman's take, or Evan Narciss's take, or seeing Ryan and Joe's take, is that I can stop editing and instead be the fan I always was all those years ago. Moreover, Ryan and Joe are working in film with actors who can breathe life into characters, with actors who are real people, with real lives and real deaths. And that's where we pick it up with Ryan, trying to find his story, excavate his story, really, from the tragedy of Chad's passing. I met up with him at a studio in Los Angeles just weeks before the world premiere of Wakanda Forever. So I think, like, we talked before, but one of the things that I really, really wanted to um, zero in on is, obviously, there was the emotional weight of Chadwick passing, but there was the practical weight of it, too. Mm-hmm. And once the decision was made to move forward, um, to definitely do what became Wakanda forever, how do you make that switch? But you have somebody who is, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like the fulcrum mm-hmm. of your movie and... You know, tragically, they've been removed. And now you got to gotta do something else. H- how did you make the switch? How did you think about it? Once you made the decision to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you could just take me as detailed as you can be about what that process was yeah, like. Yeah, totally, totally. So I, I turned in a draft that was the film that we were going to make had Chadwick not passed away. And it was a big movie, but it was also like a character piece very much about T'Challa as a man and him grappling with finding himself in, in impossible situations and watching him navigate them. And I was really excited about it. But also the supporting characters were there. But it was it, but it was his movie. And I was mm-hmm. I was fired up about mm-hmm. that. And, and, and I was actually one of the big reasons I was so excited about it was because the first Black Panther movie was kind of different from a lot of other like first films for intro characters. We we set the world up as much as we set up T'Challa. Mm-hmm. And T'Challa took not a backseat, but he was more of a, um, he was not as front and center as you normally would have in a, in a in an intro film. So I was like really, really, really like excited to do the opposite. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and the script was built that way. Uh, so when, you know, setting the emotional aside, just the practicality of, all right, now our actor has passed away we've decided that we want to move forward and still make this movie. So we had to make a film that worked without him. It was daunting. You know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was daunting to think about it. And what we realized quickly was we had to kind of maintain the same themes because restructuring it, you know, like with um, having another character be the focus and, and having a different protagonist and, and all that stuff, which would be like a daunting task on its own. But to also restructure the themes and the questions that the film is asking, that would have been that would have been just impossible. You know, we would have had to we would have had to shut down completely and, and not really use any of that, those other things. 
so fortunately, a lot of the themes that were in that T'Challa vehicle drive were still applicable to what Wakanda would be going through if they lost that guy. And what are, what are those themes, such as? Because, and I asked that for a specific question, because when I when I watched the film, I, like one of the big ones that I think, and I think you told me this, is mother-daughter. Yeah, that's, yeah, so interesting. Um, the first script we wrote was a father-son story through and through. It was about T'Challa and his kid. Mm. And it was about a, a man who was so affected by his relationship with his father being a father. But the idea was really about how he copes with loss because he lost a ton of time with his kid, you know, and, and having to be king and his during kid being blip, somewhere. Right? Right? Yeah, exactly. Like during the blip, right. Exactly, during the blip. And, and the film dealt with tragedies befalling people and T'Challa having to find a way to cope with these things, you know. And, and the idea of coping with loss and the idea of ritual was like really heavy in that script, you know. Mm. And in that script, Shuri was kidnapped by Namor, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so that idea of Shuri spending time in Talokan, mm-hmm. there were elements of all those things in that draft. Um, but when we lost Chadwick and by circumstance lost the character of T'Challa in the script we were trying to make, it became very clear that the movie couldn't really be about fathers and sons from a plot perspective anymore. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, it illuminated a lot of things for me personally, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, which is like I never made a movie that that really dealt with my relationship with my mom, mm-hmm. you know. Like I, I had done three movies that were all kind of like centralized of a father or a son, you know. And I got excited, you know. I got excited to to have this film be about motherhood. Mm-hmm. And once that light turned on, and it made a lot of sense for sure to become our protagonist, it became a movie where like the chief relationship was a mother-daughter relationship. And I hadn't met a film like that since film school. So I was fired up, mm-hmm. you know, like I was like, mm-hmm. I was like, man, and, and and it was really clear. I would talk with Chadwick all the time about Letitia and, and about Shuri as a character. Mm-hmm. And he was, yeah, that was his favorite character in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like even aside mm-hmm. from his own self. And, and it was really interesting because- Ryan, why? I mean, it's complicated, man. Like I can, I can go into it, um, but, we looked at a lot of actresses for that role, tons of them, and they all were talented. They all were extremely gifted and skilled. And and Chad is, is really, uh, I mean, you could call him like a method actor, but he's he was very disciplined, you know, like, and he literally, when he performs, he becomes a different person, you know? And you, you know Chad, Chad had the biggest smile I ever seen in my life. It was ginormous, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like it was like a full, a full face smile. Mm-hmm. And when he would become T'Challa, he would kind of stop smiling, mm-hmm. you know, like the smile would go away um, because T'Challa had all of this weight and he was just coming over the loss of his father. And, and, you know, he's a politician who can't really show, you know, like Chad, the guy's smile is like wide open, mm-hmm. you, know, you know what I'm saying? And when he's T'Challa, if you watch those films, you know, his smile is like more measured. You know, you don't see a lot of teeth, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like sometimes like a half smile, you know? And for whatever reason, when he would, do his chemistry reads with Letitia, you would see the child smile. Mm. You know, like 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 she could break through like whatever <laughs> like preparation or get, you know, she would like just dig in there and it would, and I noticed it, the producers noticed it. And I, I actually talked to him about it. And what he said was, he said like, yo, she's really skilled, mm. like as an as a actor. You know, he was like, she's really skilled. She's probably the most skilled actor that we've auditioned. But he also says, man, she reminds me of my people. 
like she feels like she could actually be my sister for whatever reason, you know. And and, and so we, you know, we casted her, and they became really close. And you can see in all scenes that they have together, it's different, you know. Like I said, it's a difference there, you know. Um, so it was it was clear to me if we're gonna keep going, it would be through her eyes, and and it kind of made a lot of sense, man. Like even with, you know, I didn't have any control over who was taken when Thanos snapped it. Didn't I was, you know, that was different filmmakers making those calls and. Mm. and executing like Kevin's vision for the whole universe at, at large. But I find it interesting that T'Challa went away and Shuri went away. So you can make the argument that she's never been around without our brother, you know, and how a loss on that level could just be unimaginable. So that was kind of how we went. And, you know, Namor was a great antagonist. You know, I got notes from the studio, like of how we should shift him. and. At that point, Joe came into the process and we, we were able to kind of hit those notes, make the script more concise and put Shuri at the center of it. And once we did that, things like really kind of came into focus. You know, like Romana was on the throne and Shuri was, was grieving and the ritual dynamic came into play big time because the first script was based on a ritual. You know, like the whole idea of that first screenplay was that T'Challa and Toussaint were doing something that we call the ritual of eight, which is, which is where the kid turned eight years old. He got to spend eight days with his father in the, in the bush. And during those eight days, he could ask his father any question that he wanted. And his father had to answer, honestly, you know? And so now it was like, okay, well, well that ritual is gone. What ritual are we gonna do for sure? You know, and how can I plan to her relationship? Who's she doing the ritual? Oh man, which makes sense for it to be reminded. That, that, that kind of thing. And, and, and then um, as we were going through all those questions, you know, this new script kind of started to illuminate. What is the work you're doing mm -hmm. between Angela and Letitia? Like, yeah. what is the work you're doing to pull out and to highlight that relationship? I mean, not, not a lot. Mm. You know, not a lot. With, with them two in the scene, I'm usually just kind of getting out of the way. Again, the chemistry was fairly natural. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I could leave those two in the scene, they'll get each other there, mm -hmm. you know? And a lot of a lot of becoming like a professional director is knowing when to get out of the way, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Like, it's the truth, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, um, those two are just ridiculously gifted, man, and skilled, mm -hmm. and they kind of got each other's numbers, so it's not a ton of scenes where it's just them. Mm -hmm. But the one scene is them on the, at the riverbank. That's right. You know, that's, that's the right. scene where I knew if this scene doesn't work, then we don't have a movie. You need to sit here with me and with yourself. It is the only way you're going to heal from the wound caused by T'Challa's death. I'm fine, mother. You don't have to worry about me. He's gone, but, but I'm moving forward. T'Challa is dead. But that doesn't mean he's gone. When that illness took your brother from us, I had to lead a wounded nation and a broken world. But I still took time in the bush. I wandered until I found water, and I sat. Then I did this ritual that I am about to show you now. I found your brother in the breeze, pushing me gently but firm, like his hand on my shoulder. 
took some time, but he was there. And I just knelt that scene why? every time. Why? Why is that scene so crucial? It's about it's the whole movie. You know, it's, it's the whole movie. It's um, just because somebody's dead, don't mean they're gone. Mm. You know. Mm. The whole ritual gives the mom the opportunity to say that directly to her daughter, who's a scientist and a realist. And um, those two characters are there to challenge each other. You right. know? And uh, you don't believe it as a mother-daughter relationship if they're not challenging each other. You don't believe it as a movie that you're going to spend a couple more hours watching if they're not challenging each other. But yeah, that's, it's really like a simple premise, like a simple idea, a simple statement. But it's kind of like a universal concept, you know, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. us as human beings trying to grapple with the inevitable, like mm -hmm. that happens to all of us. But there's nothing like death that can, <laughs> that could be so ever present, but also seem so unfair, you know, right. like one of the things the film is about is how dangerous she is. Like um, she's the smartest person in Wakanda and designs things for the military and Wakanda is a very powerful place. She's an heir apparent. If she's not mentally stable, you know, mm -hmm. it could be very mm -hmm. bad for not just Wakanda, but for mm -hmm. the world, you know? And Ramonda knows this. And she's trying to get her to confront her loss in a way so that they can move forward in a quote unquote healthy way. Because mm -hmm. as the film goes on, you, you see that she's processing this loss in a way that's not healthy, mm -hmm. you know? And that's dangerous. And our, our antagonist shows up almost like immediately after that conversation, right. you know, and, and complicates things. And he also is having that conversation with himself, having that conversation with the world, you mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like the first time you hear a name word speak. I am not a woman who enjoys repeating herself. Who are you? I have many names. My people call me Ahkukumkan. But my enemies call me Namor. The last one was this this kind of um, beautiful celebration of diasporic culture, right? Mm -hmm. We have actors, filmmakers who are from the diaspora, from the Caribbean, African American, from the continent. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. From from the UK, and they're all coming together and they do this beautiful thing. And I think that explains a lot of the reaction. But this time, like, you had the the, the myth. Of, of, of Namor, you know, who mm -hmm. is one of, if not the oldest, you know, of, of Marvel's heroes, um, certainly the oldest mutant, which is a, a really, really important thing in Marvel. And you got a hold of him, and you got your claws into him. <laughs> in the most beautiful way, though, because I think, like, what you did for the diasporic culture, there is a lot of that in terms of indigenous. Latino, Latina, Latinx culture happening here in this film. It feels like you opened it up. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. you said, like this, this is, you know, this is for my folks, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's something larger here. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what your thought process was, you know, just in terms of in terms of Namor. Yeah. Um because again, I think the typical thing is just to go with what's there. Go with Atlantis, you know what I mean? Right, da, da, right. Da, 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 and just roll with that. Right. Like you made a new world. Yeah, we did, man. Like, like uh, we were very much 
asking ourselves the question, all right, what makes, so, so if Black Panther is now gonna be a group of films, it's like, well, what makes a Black Panther film? You know, I would have conversations with Nate and we settled on the idea of the Black Panther films being films that are rooted in real cultural realities. Mm. You know, it's always like, okay, they're films that take cultural specificity serious. Like, that not only embrace it, but like lean into it hard. Like that becomes our thing. And, it, and it's peppered through every aspect of the filmmaking. Deep research, deep dives, and things that could be seen upon second viewings. You know, um, they're films that wrestle with the idea of colonization and its effect on us. Yeah. So all of these things was like, all right, this, so this is like it was literally like, all right, well, this is it. This is what it, <laughs> these movies are. So this movie has to have this. Mm. You know, um, and this was in the books with Wakanda, right? Like that, mm. it's always, you know, it's always it's always some conflict, whether internal or external. It's always a threat of of of, of them bumping heads mm-hmm. with somebody, mm-hmm. you know. Um, mm-hmm. and, and and so so when we looked at all of that, it made a lot of sense that you know we had to pick a lane, a cultural lane for these people. You know, it couldn't be a catch-all, and it also couldn't be something that had been done before. And and, and that's when we start to think about all right. So Atlantis is obviously kind of like a man. I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not butchering the academics here, but it's like a Greco-Roman idea. You know, like um, is, is you know Atlantis specific? Yes, yes, you know? no, it is. You're exactly yes, right about that. Antiquity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and this idea is sunken. You know, mm-hmm. but then when we peel the layers back, as with all things, you realize that every culture kind of has one. Mm. Every culture kind of has a story of people that like or a place that went into the ocean. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Or, mm-hmm. or like mm-hmm. people. You know, you see, it's like it's like oh man, they got them in South Asia. Mm-hmm. You know, East Asia, continent, mm-hmm. Caribbean. You know, and so for Talcon, when we settled on this idea that they were people who who changed themselves and moved somewhere, that for me was like, oh yeah, that's it. You know, it's a migrant story. And there's gonna be some tension there between someone who had to move versus somebody who never had to, you know? Right. So that, whereas with, with Killmonger, he was moved forcefully. The African-American story, we were removed against our will, mm-hmm. you know, to a new place and forced into a new place. But the migrant story is the decision to go to a new place and, and never look back mm-hmm. and change myself, change my children. That, I felt like, oh yeah, just being from California, like I know that that's a story that a lot of people in the world are gonna identify with. They had to change themselves in a water breathers to go to this place to run from all this crazy shit, you know, you know what I'm saying? And, and man, what a chip on his shoulder this dude must have, you know? Even if he identifies with kind of slightly, it's also on a base, like, man, you know, y'all, y'all don't get it. Cause, you know, Namor got a chip on his shoulder in the books, you know? Right, right. And we were trying to find, you know, what's our movie's explanation for his chip? What's our thematic explanation for what this dude is dealing with? Cook, the work is in service or something. You know what I mean? You didn't go just say, let me just cast indigenous, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? With Chad, mm-hmm. you didn't say, let me just cast black dude who is, mm-hmm. the significance of it is there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so you were talking about communities who historically have been underserved, poorly served, exploited, et cetera, you know, mm-hmm. by, by Hollywood and by pop culture in general. And you're now bringing a high, high level of craft um, to those communities. 
that's what I see as as the observer, right? So it's like a it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a particular particular service, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That is beyond what we just call quote unquote representation, which you know, good film, bad film. Yeah. I wonder if that ties into your thought process. Like, are you thinking? Obviously, you're thinking about the fans, of course, right? Mm-hmm. I have no other way to say this, but are you in your mind? Is it? I have to perform for at this level for my people too. Wow. Uh, and you can define <laughs> my people as big as you want I know to, what by you the mean. way. You know yeah, what I'm saying? You know, I understand. I play football before I made movies and I write I write my family's names on my on my cleats. Mm. You know? Mm. Cause it's like, I don't know what I'm personally deserving of. I know I know exactly what you mean. But they deserve it all, you yeah. know. So like it's like we fight harder for other people for yeah, some reason. Man. Yeah. I, 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 yes, you know, movies are also like a form of time travel, man. Like, like it was, it's funny. I was, I was talking with my editors, and we were watching the film, and we watched the film hundreds of times. Like, we watch it to a point that, you know, we know about art. We like saying Mayan words in our sleep. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and for us, the sacrifice is we don't get to watch it for the first time. Yeah. When it's finished. And, yeah. And it's like, whoa, you know what I'm saying? Like, well, how they do that? You know, like, like that, that's what we sacrifice. And and we said to ourselves the other day, we was like, you know, the film in black, like the neuralizer, mm-hmm. that thing mm-hmm. they flash and mm-hmm. it, it take your memories away. Mm-hmm. We was like, y'all, I wish we could like neuralize ourselves and just yeah. watch it like as as our eight year old selves. You know what I'm saying? And, right. Because and, I think that we chasing more than anything like a feeling, the feeling that. I got when I watched Jurassic Park yeah. for the first time yeah. or Terminator 2 for the yeah. first time and the feeling I had while walking out of the theater, you know? And you want to give that feeling to somebody, you know what I'm saying? And and, and and yes, watching those films as a black man, it's complicated. Sometimes you're the side character, you get ate by the dinosaur, you know right. what I'm saying? Like, right, like right. I remember feeling it mm-hmm. as, a, as a kid, saying, oh man, this film is great. Mm-hmm. But man, we kind of got played in this, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, you know, or like right. that was the story right. of me in film school, bro. Mm. I show you these masterpieces, and they are masterpieces. But I'm also a black man watching this. Yeah, you know, like I can't let that go. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah, like who is for is like for people. It's for everybody, right. but it's also for people who hold both realities. So, we're supposed to end here. But one of the best things about journalism is you think you know the story, but if you're doing it right, the narrative that emerges is always deeper, more complicated, and more nuanced than you think. The end you theorize is almost never the end that actually emerges. In this case, what emerged for me is that Black Panther and Wakanda Forever were not films that were made so much as they were built. If Ryan's the architect of the MCU's Wakanda... Nate Moore was Wakanda's developer. It was Nate who called on Chad, Ryan, and Joe Robert Cole. It wasn't until I started this project that I realized how intentional and consequential these choices were. You'd be hard-pressed to find another project of this size in Hollywood's history that was conceived of, developed, and led by black men. Joe joined Ryan and me in Los Angeles to talk about this tremendous moment in Hollywood history. I wanted to ask Joe about what it meant to work on a project where everyone of consequence spoke the same language. Growing up, I never saw myself ever as a 
kind of a hero, mm -hmm. certainly not a superhero. And so you're, one, you're just the, like excitement of creating, the excitement of this, of Wakanda, like this, this that idea of, of the world building of that was, was something that was so inspiring to be a part of mm -hmm. and, uh, and daunting because you don't want to screw it up. Right. Um, but then the thing with the first film that really resonated with me also that I drew from was this idea of what it, and, and Ryan, I remember we, we talked about a lot of things, but I remember us talking about being African-American and, and how we were raised to see Africa. Yes. And, and like just that shared experience of like how we both have uh, these views of on either side that are shaped by non-black people. And, and and what that is and how that sh could shape these two, our antagonists and our protagonists, like that's really was so interesting to me and so personal. Like, and people don't realize how much of a departure like right. MCU to Charlie is from the, right. from every time you open a book. And I remember Panther 1, it was a decision that had a ripple on what this movie is. And we were going back and forth like, yo, this movie got too many characters in it. You know what I'm saying? Straight up. like. Who can we pull out? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it, it was like, hey, man, what if we took Ramana out this movie? And I remember talking to Joe and saying, hey, man, just, I said, it's don't feel right to take her out. Like, I can't explain why it doesn't feel right. And I was thinking about plot and X, Y, and Z. And then Joe said, hey, man, very calmly over the phone. He said, bro, you won't even have his mom. I didn't say nothing. After that, he said, bro, every time my mom touched me on my chest, I feel safe. Mm, damn. It's a, a deep thing to hear from your co-writer, you know what I'm saying? But it's like a profound, like, human truth. You know what I mean? Yeah. So so, yeah. so, so, so out of that came a lot of approaches with direction. You know, we cast Angela out of that, you know what I'm saying? Out of that idea. And this film is all that, right. you know? Right. Uh, the second one, right. you know? It's all that idea. And... It just reframed a lot. Do you remember that conversation? Yeah. I do remember. What were you thinking about? I was, I mean, he said it. We were trying to figure out the best version of the of the film and trying to do the right thing and make the best choices and be personal and, and follow our hearts and all those things. And, you know, my mother, my mother and my grandmother and, you know, I'm... I'm who I am because of them. So, draw a specific scene um, with Angela and Denai, and it was a line I remember that Aquarius saying, "Y'all, I've given everything." And me, I would have never wrote that line because, for me, I couldn't see Aquarius saying that to Ramonda in that tribal council. But it was important for her to say it because Aquarius would say that, and it was like, "Oh yeah, sometimes." People say shit they probably shouldn't say at certain moments to certain people, you know what I'm saying? Right. But that's like reality. And then unlock something in that scene. Nigateta, umkanikas. You may. Yatlena. I have given everything. Let me die saving my country and that throne. Yatlena, mama. Allow me to make this right. Make it right. I do not know if my daughter is alive or dead. I mean, it's beautiful, bro. Like, like to be able to have 
the room for collaboration because the world is just really that way. And, and me and Joe, though we get along, bro, our lives were not the same. Same with Nate. You know what I'm saying? Like we all three black people, but our experiences are very different. You know yeah. what I'm you know what I'm saying? Like in and it's helpful to be able to say, hey man, what if this happened? Or and what when you passing the script back and forth, you know, you run with something, you see it, it's like, oh shit. To have that is great, man. But I um I did not cast Chad. I did not pick Joe. These are like decisions that I inherited. And man, like I'm uh, truly uh, grateful. Is it, yeah. is it, is it, is it true? I got uh, one one thing I, w I would ask you guys to do, which is kind of, uh, you know, I don't know that you guys are prepared for this, but it just occurred to me listening to you both. Um, you both have highlighted the uniqueness of the situation. I think it's quite clear. You got black exec, you know what I mean, who uh, hires you, Joe. Uh, actually, you know, you know, along with Kevin Cass, uh, 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 T'Challa, I said Nate, Nate was very much responsible for that because um, I've heard him talk about that. Um, and then brings you in. So you come into a situation, right, that's yeah. actually actually well set up. Yeah, 100%. Very, very, yeah. very well set up. Um, you then, you know, hire other folks. And so now you, now you have a collective of, 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 of folks who feel the story in a, in, a, in a way, like obviously craftsmen at the highest level. But also feel the significance of it, you know, in, in in a particular way. I wonder if that is giving you guys any insights on the rest of Hollywood. And I wonder whether it has done anything in terms of your expectations. Thinking beyond yourselves, yeah, my, even thinking about young, young yeah. filmmakers, et cetera. Like I wonder yeah. how you guys think about everything else, knowing that. I've actually had enough experience in my 36 years of living to be able to recognize special situations, special circumstances, special people. I've come across them a few times, you know? And Panther was like special in so many ways, man. That, that I, whenever I'm working on it, a lot of the anxiety I have is because I know that it's a chance something like this might not ever happen again, straight up. And Chad knew it more than anybody. So like what I'll do when I'm dealing with other companies or other situations and you know as I get older I deal with more. I try to say, look, Panthers are one you know, <laughs> Panthers, Panther. If I walk in the door with them type of expectations, I'm walking the door expecting Faye sitting across the, you know what I'm saying, out of the chair or for somebody to say, yeah, we got a writer on this project and it's Joe. You know what I'm saying? Like that that, that ain't how it works. And I don't know if that's how it should work, you know? But shouldn't there be more of these? I'm not, and I'm not, look, I understand it, it would but be I nice. understand specific. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, like what you're basically saying is not a diversity conversation. Yeah. Like this is a, a, a craftsmanship and a deep knowledge of a culture conversation. Yeah. And they can walk in and they know that they're going to have other people like that. And um, yeah, this feels original in that sense. You you would think it should be more of that, right? It's more, I think it's more coming. Right. Like I, like right. I, I do think mm -hmm. that, I do think that like what we were able to do has has made an impact. Right, right. Yeah. I just I just want to ask in the most general sense, what is the significance of, of, of Nate Moore? Yeah, without Nate, I'm not standing here, you know, um, because I, Nate, Nate called me and first thing I asked him, I was like, hey, yo, you black? You know, over the phone, because he was, he, he called and was like, hey, yo, it's a child of this, child of that, you know what I'm saying? And I, I was listening to him and I was like, oh, I think there's a black dude on the other end of the car. So I just asked him, because like your worst nightmare is going into a situation making a character whose blackness 
is so fundamental to why he's a thing, you know? And you don't have anybody who knows what that means in a position of power. I'm not sure I would have done it if that wasn't the case because it never feels good to be the only black person in the room. Mm. But trying to make something like this mm -hmm. without, without somebody there, for me, I would, it would have been impossible. You well, know? I, I think, you know, we understand collectively, but I, I want to tease that out. Why is it important for you not to be the only black person in the room? There's something beautiful about being in a room with other black folks and having shared experiences, but different points of view. Mm -hmm. Because you're creating not in a vacuum right. where people are looking at you as, as the, well, what is it? And you're going, well, it could be a lot of things. It would be great to have someone who has a shared experience to be able to bounce it off, especially in a position like what Ryan's talking about. These are big, big movies and having somebody who really understands where you're coming from to be able to even, Nate can translate. He's the bridge in that way. Yeah, I wouldn't be here if, if that wasn't who called me. Yeah. You know? Outside of comics, for all of my original works, I've had a black editor. There is simply no way I'd be where I am if this weren't the case. This isn't a brief for some sort of magical or God forbid genetic invocation of race. This is about shared culture and shared history. It's about having a partner who gets your references, the Red Summer, the Double V campaign, or George Jackson, and can build on them. That last part is so key. When you're a black writer in a room with a black editor, or a black director in the room with a black producer, the possibilities are boundless. Ideas ping back and forth with each of you adding new ones, drawn from a shared well of symbols, metaphors, and narratives. But when you're the only black person in the room, you're just trying to bring everyone else up to speed. It's like opening a soul food joint and having to explain cornbread to your whole staff. And that's not just true for black people. At the genesis of any successful project rooted in a collective experience, be it the Irish experience, be it the Jewish experience, be it the LGBTQ experience, you need authors who know that experience, who've seen its possibilities and its limits. The reason the Black Panther movies work so well, I'm convinced, is because its authors understood that need. That's not race. That's heritage. That's reality. That's life. Now, I'll admit, I love talking about writing. It's close to my heart. But the true mystery of these films for me is the spell they cast, the music, the setting, the acting. Next week, we'll hear about that from some of the people who make all of that happen. Production designer Hannah Beekler. I wanted to infuse everything with Chadwick's memory, paying tribute to him and paying tribute to the character that changed film. Director of photography, Autumn Durald Arkapa. How do you light the deep ocean? How do you show up a city, a culture? How do you make it feel real? These people are also talking underwater. How do you do that? And the incomparable actor, 
Angela Bassett. Yeah, when you get an opportunity to pull from a real place and you really have an opportunity to reach out of that screen and pull at someone else's heart and imagination, that's what you hope to do every time you step up to the plate. I'll be back next week with another chapter of Wakanda Forever, the official Black Panther podcast. If you like the show, be sure to follow, rate, and review it on your favorite podcast app and tell your friends and loved ones to do the same. Learn more about our journey at proximitymedia.com and follow at Proximity Media, at Marvel, and at Marvel Studios on Twitter and Instagram. Wakanda Forever, the official Black Panther podcast, is a production of Proximity Media in collaboration with Marvel Studios and Marvel Entertainment. The series is written and hosted by me, ta Coates, and produced by Paul Amardo. Executive producers are Ryan Coogler, Zinzi Coogler, Sav Ohanian, and Paul Amardo. The film score is composed by Ludwig Gorenson. James Kim is our story editor. Our audio editors are Cameron Kell and Cedric Wilson. Sound design and additional music is by Pat Masidi Miller. Lauren Newson is our audio engineer. Paulina Cherisova is our production assistant. Special thanks to Octavia Rideout, Adam Cole, Susan Mueller, Lydia Ward, Courtney Archett, Natalie Mead, and the Proximity Media team. The character of the Black Panther was created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Black Panther Wakanda Forever is co-written and directed by Ryan Coogler. It is produced by Kevin Feige and Nate Moore and streaming only on Disney+. I'm Ta-Nehisi Coates. Thanks for listening. I'll meet you back here next week.